are able, please stand for the reading of the word. I'll be reading out of Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let him down on the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But this you may know, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you so much, Kathy. I want to encourage you again, if, uh, if you don't have a Bible, um, to take the one that's underneath your seat, um, and, uh, we, uh, and you can use that all during service today. Um, and, but just... Please, please do consider that to be your own. If you know somebody else who could use it, especially in times like this, please do take that as our gift to you. Um, we, uh, um, again, um, at the risk of getting too sappy, I just, I have longed for this day <laughs> to see you face to face. And I, I have to tell you, God says some just really remarkable things happen amongst God's people when they do this, even if they are six feet apart. It says that God's presence shows up. He transforms us. And he does so as the word is proclaimed. And so I encourage you to keep your Bibles open this morning as we listen to what God says. And trust me when I say this, it is more relevant than ever. I want to say, if you consider yourself something of a skeptic to Christianity, you're not perhaps even entirely sure what it, where you're at when it comes to church, you are in, I, I, you're so welcome here, but you're also in good company. There's others here who are in that spot. And if you are at all interested in hearing firsthand who Jesus considers himself to be, you couldn't have perhaps any more important, hardly a more important passage than the one we have today, the first 12 verses of chapter 2 in John Mark's gospel. But I don't think these verses only apply to those who come here not sure of where we're at spiritually. I think it applies directly to the Christian as well. I would say that every passage does, but I think in some tangible ways today, um, even those of us who feel like we have a good handle on who Jesus is, may find this passage a bit disorienting. It may pick a fight with some of your assumptions about who Jesus is and what it looks like to come to him. But we're, uh, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. We're going to be looking again at John, uh, I'm sorry, not John, John Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 
2, verses 1 through 12. If you're having trouble finding that, again, go to your table of contents in the front of your Bible. You can also go on your phone. There are some great apps I would encourage you to if, you're, if you would feel more comfortable, again, not using a print Bible. Uh, uh, the ESV Bible app is free. Um, also, uh, the, uh, there's the, um, what's the other one that I'm thinking of? What's the more, more popular? version, thank you. version is also very helpful. So you can download that even during service today and use it there. Um, but we're going to look at these verses in three parts. We're going to talk about desperate times, number one. Desperate measures, number two. And desperate needs, number three. Let's start with the first, desperate times. Now, I have to tell you, when I... I, I love being in Gospels like Mark because I just find Jesus to be absolutely hilarious. I, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever thought about Jesus as being funny before, but I can't imagine what it would have been like to have been his disciples. Some of us have rather romantic notions about what it would have been like to walk with Jesus. I'll tell you, frustrating. Really frustrating. Because Jesus, he, he, gets, he keeps disappearing on people. We've already found this in John Mark's gospel. He begins, his, his ministry begins to take off in Capernaum, the city he's coming back to now. And uh, at, uh, they stretch on late into the night. He's healing people. Everybody's really excited. Pack up shop and get ready to do it tomorrow. And he takes off to the wilderness without telling anyone. The disciples search for the next day. Jesus, where in the world are you? And they find him there. And he says, okay, we're, we're actually not going to go back to where the crowds are. We're going to go to other cities. Then he goes to those cities, and more crowds surface, and as they begin to swell, he seems actually frustrated that crowds are swelling, and then he leaves again and goes to the wilderness. Then our passage says, after some time, he, uh, as he's in, after these desolate places, after some days, he comes back to Capernaum, but he comes secretly back to Capernaum. He doesn't come with a, a Twitter post. He doesn't come with a, hey, Peter, go tell them that I'm coming, where, where they can find me. Um, instead, he, our passage says uh, it was reported that he was at home. Hey, I think somebody found Jesus. He, he's actually at home, guys. And so and then everybody goes and finds him back. This is just so wonderfully unstrategic. Like this is, just, this is Jesus as if he's, he's unwooed by the crowds, as, as if he, he, in fact, he's, he's got a different mission that rules him, that runs, is at the front of his mind, even if it doesn't seem to be to play out in terms of business strategy. And Jesus uh, nonetheless gathers more crowds at Peter and Andrew's uh, doorstep, two of Jesus' disciples, probably where Jesus was staying at the time. Doesn't doesn't take long for the word to spread, and the crowds are pressing in to get near a teacher. Now, I, it's weird to ask this, but have you, uh, especially right now, do you remember what it was like to be ever pressed by a crowd? You ever been in the midst of a crowd where you're you're stuck, like Black Friday? Okay, or I, I think of when I lived in Chicago, and we'd get, I'd get on the L train, and depending on what time of day it was, uh, especially if there was just a, if there was a Cubs game, um, I, it literally, it was like, all right, I'm just going to shove my way in and hope I can hold on to something. So, and you go in, and you're just stuck amidst like sweaty people, and uh, people who are often cursing around you, and it's loud, and you can't breathe, and you're just praying for getting, to get out of that crowd. Um, everyone bumping up against you, shoving and elbowing into the, enter, into, the, into the center of this train car. This is, this is a bit of what it was like at this moment. That's what we need to picture. Everybody wants to get as close to Jesus as possible. And so you probably have in this house as many as 50 people under the roof. How many of you would want to have 50 people come over? And they're all pressing in to get to Jesus. And there's so many people that they've even shoved themselves in the doorway. So imagine somebody who has to go to the bathroom in this. You're not going anywhere. Um, and uh, the rest are tiptoeing outside, looking over him. And verse 2 tells us there was no more room, not even at the door. 
for many of us, this would be a good Sunday. After all, isn't that what we want? We want a crowd. Many of us have been to churches where this is very much the goal. I've served in churches, been, I was raised in churches where the crowd was the goal to get people, as many people, into the room as was necessary and by whatever means were necessary. Maybe by preaching a sermon series on sex. Maybe by the pastor smashing an egg on his forehead or kicking off the service with one of today's top hits. Whatever it takes to get people in the doors. It may surprise us, though. Do you know that the crowd, the crowd is never referred to positively in John Mark's gospel. John Mark, I mean, it tells us that Jesus leaves the crowd behind. In fact, he seems intent at various points to thin out the crowd by giving them more controversial teaching, more difficult teaching, teaching that's hard to believe. And just look at the passage right before this one, specifically at chapter 1, verse 45, and it seems to say that the swelling crowds, the crowds themselves, were getting in the way of Jesus' mission. He was frustrated by them. In fact, the most consistent attribute of the crowd in John Mark's gospel is that they block the way to Jesus. Have you ever thought of the crowd as holding someone back from Christ? Have you ever considered the crowd might be getting in the way of the gospel? I don't mean to say that we don't want a whole heap of people to confess faith in Jesus Christ, genuinely seek him and follow him, even if it means uh, death to themselves, following his same word in repentance and faith. This, our church exists for exactly that purpose, to make disciples of all nations, to, to make more lifelong followers of Christ, genuine seekers of Jesus who want to follow him in obedience as they confess faith in the gospel. That's what we want, but the, that's not really what the crowd is. I want to point out two features of the crowd that stand out here. First is the crowd misses the mission. Crowd misses the mission. Certainly the crowd is drawn to Jesus. There's something about him that's very attractive. But as we've already seen in John Mark's gospel, they, a crowd can be drawn for the wrong reasons. They may have come to Jesus, but Jesus is concerned that they're not coming for Jesus. It's not Jesus they really want. It's something else that he offers, usually some sort of miraculous sign or healing. Many people uh, today are guilty of this, actually, I think. Many Christians can remake Jesus' mission in their own image. They see Jesus as a positive role model for their kids, a social justice warrior, a positive life coach, a defender for the family, a miracle worker, Someone who stands up to the man. Someone who really gets me. Not to say that Jesus isn't these things. But in many ways, we, are, this, we remake Jesus' mission after our own image rather than the one he's told us he came to fulfill. We see this in the fights we pick and how we evaluate others. Even our churches, we say things like, why didn't, why didn't you mention this? Well, you must not care about that. We should be out fighting this, shouldn't we? Why don't you offer that? This is really what the church should be about. And it's time to find a church that's going to do that. Jesus offers the solution to our deepest needs. All of us have longings that Jesus intends to answer. 
And so often these needs and longings is what Jesus uses to catch our attention. But there's a danger when we come to Jesus only to have our felt needs met. We come to Jesus as another product to consume. We are tempted to remake Jesus into whatever we are excited about or desperate for. And when Jesus doesn't provide as we expect, it's time to move on down the line. But Jesus will not be remade. Jesus will not be forced into a box of our own making. Jesus makes his mission clear, and if we miss it, we miss Jesus. We'll look more at Jesus' mission in just a second, but there's something else we learn about the crowd here, and the second is that the crowd does not part for others. Verse 3 tells us that in the midst of this crowd, shoving to get closer to Jesus, five men arrive in desperate need of him. A man paralyzed for who knows how long, and the four friends who are carrying his mattress. They need Jesus. Uh, They need to get to Jesus. They know his power, and they know that he is the only one who can help. But the crowd doesn't budge for them. It's as if the crowd doesn't even see that they're there. Why? Well, to put it bluntly, the crowd only comes for themselves. They want to make sure that their needs are met. And because this has their exclusive attention, they no longer see others around them. The crowd sees others as the interruption to getting what they want, the threat to my happiness. It doesn't even have to be intentional, but the fear, the shame, the hurt that every single one of us is facing. If if you're not facing them right now, it's only a matter of time. The fear, the shame, the hurt that every single one of us will experience, I think we would say they have a way of polarizing us, don't they? When we're scared, we get angry, we politicize, we divide into those who are on my side and those who aren't. We reduce people to stats and talking points. Fear, shame, and hurt have a way of blinding us to the needs of others, and we see it especially right now. The crowd doesn't consider how its preferences and opinions might need to shift for those in need. The crowd doesn't rejoice when someone else gets the attention. The crowd fights for its turn. Friends, I fear many Christians can act like the crowd. Perhaps the most important thing to say is the crowd does not come in faith, actually. It does not come for Jesus supremely. And it stands in the way of those who do. This leads to our next part. Desperate measures. Can you imagine these five friends arriving at the home after carrying their friend for who knows how long? The frustration they feel when they finally get there and the, and they, the crowd refuses to move. Their friend is in wretched shape and they need Jesus now. Out of options, they get creative. Can you imagine them looking at one another? I mean, what if we I mean, no. I mean, we couldn't. I mean, it, it could work though, right? And soon enough, without anybody noticing, they, they climb the stairs to the roof. They set down their friend and they begin digging. Can you picture the people in the room at the time? A weird scratching sound starts at the ceiling. They wonder if an animal's gotten loose. And the dirt all of a sudden begins to fall in their hair. 
light peeks in from the ceiling. Can you imagine Peter and Andrew, whose home this is, panicking? Good grief, this is our home. What in the world are you doing? As clods of dried mud fall, sticks and thatch rain down, rain down on the crowded room. Again, about 50 people who are getting their hair filled with dirt. And the pinhole becomes a manhole, becomes a gaping hole large enough for a bed to be lowered through, which is exactly what they do, lowering their friend carefully to the, thro- to, to the floor below. Do you wonder if they just avoided the eye contact as they're doing so? Until the, this man uh, lays before Jesus. What a picture. And all eyes then turn, perhaps the quiet's in the room, and they all turn to Jesus. What is Jesus going to do? Perhaps he's going to rebuke these men for their rudeness, let alone the property destruction that they rain down on the home where he's staying. What if this is even his bedroom? Where others see an interruption, where others see disrespect, Jesus sees faith. Don't miss this. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus came to preach his coming kingdom and how we enter it. Namely, what he says through repentance and faith. But this is the first time in Mark's gospel that we read about what, how faith is pictured. It's, you know, the first time that faith is called out, it's not among the crowd. It's not even among the disciples. It's called out in these roof-tearing men and their crippled friend, desperate to get to Jesus. Two things I want to point out about the nature of faith that we learn here. First is faith is active. Again, I want to revisit the crowd for a second, the way that John Mark characterizes the crowd at least. The crowd comes to Jesus, but they only come to Jesus as, as someone who is intriguing. They find Jesus interesting. They find him fascinating. They like what he does. They're wowed by what he says. He's the best show in town. Faith is different. Faith isn't passive. Faith is active. Faith isn't just being intrigued by Jesus. Faith isn't just feeling warm feelings toward Jesus. It's not even just understanding what Jesus says. Faith is desperate for Jesus. Faith understands its need, understands that it can go nowhere else for hope and comes to Jesus alone for rescue. Faith pursues, faith seeks. Faith is desperate for Jesus. Faith is active. And friend, whatever has brought you here, I want you to know we are grateful for you. We are grateful that you are here, even if you consider yourself more of a skeptic, more of an outsider to Christianity. We recognize that many here aren't sure what to make of Jesus and his church, yet you are intrigued enough about him that you stick around. And if that's you, I am grateful. And I hope you would continue to stick around for months to come as, and even years to come as, you hope, as we hope that you begin to make sense of the claims of Christianity among us. But it's important to say that this is not, in the end, enough. Christianity is not something that can be examined from a distance forever, perpetually checked out and tried on for size, perhaps added in to the blender of what else you might believe and value already. After all, despite what many assume, Christian faith is not just believing certain facts about Jesus or feeling a certain way toward Jesus or even doing things for Jesus. Christian faith is not only convinced that Jesus is who he says he is and there is nowhere else to go for this kind of hope. Christian faith acts upon that knowledge, coming to, faith, coming to Jesus in desperation and dependence. It confesses faith in him and it relocates trust in him alone. There's still a second aspect of faith we must not miss. Faith brings others. 
Again, I've pointed out the crowd comes for itself. It fights for its own needs, and it makes sense, especially in times of fear and panic. But notice the picture of faith here. Four men bringing a friend in great need. It's one of the most important results of active faith. It makes us not only to not only desperate to have Jesus, but to bring others to him as well. Whatever it takes, whatever it might cost me, whatever others might think in the process, faith makes me desperate for those that I love to come to Jesus too. This is one of my favorite things actually to watch about new Christian converts, those who are recent to confess faith in Jesus Christ. It's like they can't wait to tell others about Jesus and they're confused when other people are upset with them and they find the conversation awkward. They, it's like as if they can't, they can't wait to talk about it and can't figure out why people aren't as excited as they are. I love watching this and, I, and in fact it infuses new faith in me even if they don't have everything figured out. Uh, but over time I fear our faith gets sleepy Our faith begins to cool. It's not that we hate our neighbor. It's just that we don't know them. It's not that we openly avoid our neighbor, but we don't necessarily go out of our way to be near them either. Sometimes what stands in the way of the gospel is our distance from the ones who need to hear it. Can you list right now unbelievers you are actively building friendships with? Who are you discussing the gospel with on an ongoing basis? Who are you praying for regularly that Christ might save them? Can you list their names? Or do we care more about if our side is winning in the news cycle than we do the souls of others? Does your indifference stand in the way of the gospel? Active faith hates making excuses Active faith does not give up easily. Active faith doesn't just look for new opportunities. It makes them. Active faith gets creative, even if it needs to dig through a roof. Though if that's your particular problem, I would love to talk with you. This leads to our third point and the real beating heart of our passage, desperate needs. Verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. I'm sorry, what? I think this might have been confusing for everyone involved. First of all, for the diggers and their crippled friend as they're leaning over, waiting for the moment when their, their, their friend is going to rise from his mat. Leave off for a second that Jesus is eventually going to heal the man. They don't know this. All they know is that Jesus just answered with, son, your sins are forgiven. Only they didn't come to have his sins forgiven. They came so that Jim Bob might walk again. It's a nice Hebrew name, I know. Now, so often Jesus catches us by surprise, I think. We, came to Jesus, we come to Jesus out of a, a sense of a very real and pressing need, sometimes out of a desire for community, sometimes out of a fear of divine wrath, but then Jesus gives us something different. In fact, he gives us something more than that. Not every suffering is the direct result of a specific sin. Neither is it helpful to go on a sin hunt every time someone gets diagnosed with cancer or loses jo- a job or experiences depression. Some sufferings are, maybe even the paralysis of this man, maybe it's traced to a specific sin, but not every suffering. But every suffering is the result of a world broken by sin. And since we have all contributed to that brokenness, we will share in its consequences. Why is 
the world full, so full of tears and sorrow and hurt and loss. It's because we live in a world that is not as it should be. And how did it come to not be as it should? Because sin broke it, a sin that we have contributed in. This is why Jesus persistently pushes people past his miracles. It's why he gets frustrated when they come only for his miracles. And it's why right now he holds off from performing another even though he's going to do that. Because as wonderful as the miracles are, they are the ultimate evidence of an even greater mission. You see, we can't always see our deepest needs. So often we want relief when we need something deeper, something more life-threatening. But the remarkable thing about Jesus is he's not waiting for you to realize or agree before taking the initiative on your behalf. Jesus is resolved to, res to resolve your deepest need even if you don't realize it yet. Of course, you can't receive his mercy in faith if you don't wake up to this need uh, eventually. But Jesus goes to the cross, importantly, on behalf of the ones who aren't begging him to do so. Here for all to see, Jesus is pointing forward to the cross. He has come not simply to heal, not simply even to teach. He has come to bring about the kingdom of God, and that will only come if sin can be forgiven, even if they can't see it yet. In Jesus' response, I think we actually see two vital claims that he makes about himself. The first is about his mission to forgive sinners. Jesus is making a claim, again, about his mission, a mission to accomplish forgiveness for human beings who had no hope of having God, let alone a kingdom, a, a, a world where there will be no suffering and hurt, where, where tears will, will be wiped away, where everything sad will become untrue. This kingdom we could not participate in apart from his work. And I fear that many have tried to soften the gospel or try to expel forgiveness from the gospel because it makes us uncomfortable. Today, it is common for the gospel, the good news, to be summarized merely as God loves us. That is true, but it is not the gospel. Or as God, God's command to love our neighbors as he wants us to, but that is not the gospel. Or as God's concern for social justice, which is an implication of the gospel, but still not the center. Or God's commitment to bring me to heaven someday, again, an implication of the gospel, but not the gospel itself. Friends, these are implications and maybe assumptions of the gospel, but they are not the gospel. The gospel hinges upon forgiveness. The forgiveness that Jesus accomplished through his perfect life, his death upon a cross, and his resurrection from the grave. Our faith is not rooted in earthly power or in economics or in human ingenuity or in scientific advance. Our hope is rooted in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ to secure forgiveness for sinners. What do we need to come to Christ for? Now, I, I've said already before, many of us come to Jesus, and rightfully so, because we have some other need that we want him to answer, our loneliness, our hurt and shame. God wants to answer these things, but the order is really important because he doesn't come to only answer that need. He's come to answer every need that you aren't sensing right now, every need that's a downstream effect of sin itself, and reversing the effects of sin come after the sins have been forgiven. We may start by coming to Jesus to repair one of these effects, but if then we do not come to him for our sin problem, if we don't recognize our need for forgiveness and its accomplishment through Jesus, if we do not have our faith, in a sense, grow up, we have not really come to Jesus at all. If you remove forgiveness from the gospel, you remove its beating heart. 
Claim number two is one he makes about his identity. Fully God and fully man. This second claim is what really ticks off the town leaders. And this is where we see a shift in, Jesus, in, this, uh, in John Mark's gospel. In fact, the next, uh, the next stories that we're going to see in chapter two and three uh, may not have come perhaps in direct order, but they all have a common theme. The opposition that Jesus receives from the town leadership, particularly from the religious leaders at the time. Verse six through eight, tell us that Jesus didn't just see the faith of the men who came for healing. And this is, again, is remarkable. Jesus isn't just perceptive or empathetic. He has a supernatural kind of knowledge that he could even read the minds of those who are his opponents, the shock and skepticism of the scribes. And why are they so upset? Jesus' statement might be lost on us, but it was not lost on these town leaders. These were experts in God's word. They knew, as experts in God's word, that there is only one way that sin can be forgiven, and that was if God does it. Why? Well, well, it's important. Let me ask you. Many people have asked, again, why can't Jesus, why can't God just shove sin away? Why can't he just put it on the carpet, put it on the carpet? Why can't he just pretend it as if it doesn't exist? Why is it that God needs to forgive sin in the death of Christ? Because only the one who has been sinned against can forgive the sin. Only the one who has been sinned against can bear the consequences of it. Imagine, hypothetically, that, just hypothetically, of course, that someone I know, a good friend of mine, was slandered on Facebook this week. I know, it's so strange. Imagine that we said ridiculous and cruel things to one another over social media. Imagine then that I went into, onto his post I saw the, 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 what this, this other person was saying to my friend, and I responded to those vicious comments, no worries, I forgive you. It may be well-intended, but only my friend who has been hurt and offended can extend the forgiveness, correct? Otherwise, forgiveness is hollow, it's meaningless. This is why the Bible says ultimate forgiveness is always left in God's hands, Even David in Psalm 51 understands that his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah, is supremely an offense against God. Psalm 51 verse 4 says, Against you, speaking of God, and you only have I sinned. Not because David is trying to cover up some sort of sin, but because he understands that God, ultimately speaking, is the one who is first and most affected by our sin. Sin is first and foremost against God. Him, it is a betrayal. It is, it is, it is a, it's why the Bible so often compares it to being cheated on. The question is a legitimate one. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Any human who claimed that kind of authority was either disgustingly arrogant or ignorantly dismissive of what the nature of sin is. But more than that, this claim would amount to what would have been called blasphemy, a term we don't use uh, very often. How, what, when did you last call someone a blasphemer? <laughs> I'd love to hear about that conversation. But this is, a, this is what this means is that they are putting him, that Jesus is putting himself on par with God himself. That's what they think he's assuming and asserting, and they would be right. The very accusation that Jesus later faces in his trial is an accusation of blasphemy, blasphemy of equating himself with God. Notice, however, that Jesus not only perceives their hearts, he refuses to back off. He doesn't, he doesn't backpedal and say, whoa, 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 let's just be really clear. I'm, I'm, I, uh, I, I'm, I can heal, but only God can forgive. He doesn't. He intends to make his claim clear, which is why he heals, actually. 
You see, Jesus could have left the man unhealed and still been compassionate. After all, it was only a matter of time before this man experienced other effects of sin, the most significant being death, him, death itself. He's not walking around anymore. Forgiveness was his greatest need. And it is the need that Jesus came to address in full, even if the man and his friends didn't recognize it yet. Still, he knows that the scribes could easily have blown him off, listening in on this. After all, it might seem easy to claim forgiveness, which is why Jesus' question is so powerful. It might seem to claim forgiveness. You can't exactly see forgiveness. It's not stamped on your forehead, forgiven, is it? Jesus seeks to prove that claim. As a, uh, his, if he was a blasphemer, he, meaning if he equated himself with God, if God was giving him authority before to do the healings and he just then blasphemed that God, surely God's not going to give that power anymore. God's going to take his hands off. In fact, we might be expecting a lightning bolt. But this doesn't happen. He, he wouldn't have God, he, we expect that, again, God wouldn't give the authority to heal if he's blaspheming. But when that man rises from the mat, the scribes are forced into a dilemma. They're forced to reckon with these claims. They only have a few explanations left to them. As a former college professor, I often had students wonder in my class, isn't it true that Jesus thought of himself as more of a teacher, maybe a revolutionary, maybe of a, as a specially enlightened, spiritually with it guru? Did Jesus really think of himself as God? After all, isn't it later Christians like Paul who made these claims up. I mean, after all, why didn't Jesus come out and say it? Hey, guys, I'm God. Where I'd often take them is to John Mark's gospel. Jesus claims to forgive sins because, ultimately, he is the one sins are against. He has the authority of God himself to do so because he is God himself. And it turns out, if this is not true... Forgiveness is a broken promise. It can never be accomplished, even through a cross. Jesus' mission as to forgive sins and his identity as fully God, fully man, they cannot be separated. His mission and his identity go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. And if you are a Christian, let me encourage you, our goal is not simply to present Jesus as impressive and intriguing, our aim is to help others confess Jesus as God in flesh who takes away the sins of the world. Like Jesus' miracle here, often we need to minister to felt needs along the way. Christians, yes, care about the eternal salvation of, of those they come in contact to, but that does not mean they're callous to the very real needs in front of them. And I fear many Christians are. They feel like they're compromising on that gospel if they care about needs of justice and of mercy these are not distractions from it. In fact, we learn from here, I think this has been on my mind these past few weeks, but this is why Christians seek justice, because it gives evidence of the very things that they're claiming. Yes, right now we disagree about what the next steps are when it comes to the racial divides that have been surfaced again. We may disagree about what the next steps are, but we do not, we must not, according to God's word, about what the standards are. We know what justice looks like in God's kingdom. We pray and work for a just society because that is the kind of king Jesus is and the kind of kingdom he intends to bring. And because we want to show it off, we want to others to say, that's like what, my, what Jesus is going to bring. Let me tell you how he's going to bring it. As SBC president J.D. Greer puts it, 
and put it this week, we know that in the gospel and the gospel alone are the resources for a reconciled people. And we know that reaching people, our witness depends on how we respond in moments like this one. I fear many Christians can put obstacles in front of the gospel. And I'm saying that to myself. In what ways might you be blocking the way to Christ? Are you desperate instead to bring others to him? How far will you go to do so? What right will you give up? What conversation will you risk? What, what is your next best step of, of courage and love? Maybe you feel too tired or afraid to take it. I'm saying this to me. Consider your own desperate need for Jesus. Hear Jesus speaking to you, son, daughter. Your sins have been forgiven. Now, who needs to hear that good news next? Might they hear it from you? Let me ask, if you are not a Christian friend, again, I am so glad that you would come to our church. I, we hope our church takes seriously the doubts and questions and baggage you come with. But are you content like the crowds to just examine Jesus, to see if he has something to offer you? Are you or are you left saying, we never saw anything like this? Are you becoming desperate for Jesus? Christianity calls all of us at some point to turn from what we once trusted in and to trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, even if we, do, if we don't understand everything yet. Fighting for this kind of enduring faith for the rest of our lives, would you even today... And Christians, this is the same faith that we are fighting for now to walk in step with, to remind ourselves of what we have been forgiven, what our central need is, and how all things will be repaired. Friends, I encourage you now to pray with me. And as, as we do so, we need God's help to know what's next. We need the gospel to motivate and to comfort. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, uh, we confess that we are all responding to your work wrongly. You know, in some ways, you know, we, even for the Christians here, we just know that you are producing a transformed life in us. We're walking in step with obedience because your spirit is at work, because you promised to finish a work that you started. Oh, Lord, and you deserve the credit for us. We didn't figure anything out on our own. We don't have a special kind of morality or courage it's different from those around us. We, have some, we don't have anything that God has not given us. Christians, including myself, we, we want an active faith. Would you help us, Lord, to take the next step of love and obedience? And where we are cold to those around us, where we are afraid, where we have contributed to division, would we have the gospel soften us once again? Would we sit and listen again to Jesus' affirmation your sins have been forgiven and would we consider what lengths he went to to accomplish it until it causes our hearts to soften until we find excitement instead wondering who god might rescue next i pray for those who are not christians that here today they even as they consider Jesus' claims and we pray that they do that they begin to consider jesus himself and that some even today might take him in faith.
This only happens if you empower it. This only happens if your grace would sustain it. We watch for it, Lord. We pray all these things for Christ's sake in desperate, in desperate times. We pray this for Christ's sake, amen.